Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring, our, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by an art, by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Not far from here, there's a little town called Linville. Linville. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. You say Linville if you're not from here. Linville. <clears throat> and uh, if Linville is known for anything, known for its caves, or the fancy way of saying it is caverns. That's how you market it for tourists. Uh, they're caverns. <clears throat> for just $12, you can tour the Linville caverns on a day trip. The caves were discovered 200 years ago. They descend 1,300 feet into the subterranean earth, but the deepest that human life can travel is only 700 feet. Anything beyond that is too narrow for us to explore without some kind of tools or technology. And they have all the things that you want out of a good cave. They have the stalactites, and they have the stalagmites. you got to learn those fun words in science class, right? They also have bats. They have creepy sounds. They have claustrophobia, 
And of course, they have darkness. If you take the tour at one point, they will cut out all the lights so that you can just feel what it's like to be down there in the midst of the pitch black darkness. And it's a darkness unlike anything else. It's an amazing experience. This text reminded me of the Linville Caverns this week and also a theory that was made famous by an Athenian from a long, long time ago named Plato. In his great work entitled The Republic, Plato describes human life and understanding with an an analogy known as the cave theory. The cave theory. Here is this desperate philosopher trying to make sense of his own existence along with everything else in the world. And he says that there is a cave. And inside that cave, there are prisoners. Those prisoners are chained toward the back of the cave, facing the back of the wall, and they cannot move their heads. They can only look towards the back of the cave. The entrance of the cave is a long way behind them, but there's just enough of an opening to let natural sunlight into the cave. And in between the opening of the cave and the prisoners who are facing the opposite direction, there are these puppeteers making shadows from the sunlight onto the back wall of the cave. So all of the prisoners can only see the shadows appearing on the wall. They see all these forms and movements, and this is all that these prisoners know. They've never seen the puppets or the things that actually make the shadows. They've never seen the sun. All they see are the shadows. So Plato's great philosophical claim here is that we are all we are able to see and know about ourselves and the world we live in is but a shadow of the truth. We know there is something more, but all we see are the shadows. And because we're chained in a cave, we will never see the actual sun or the actual cause of all life and existence as we know it. Therefore, we know there's something out there, but that something or that someone simply cannot be known. I remember reading this in college and being just blown away. If only Plato would have read Acts chapter 17. He's right. We are living in a cave. The chains of agnosticism, though, and not knowing of what lies outside, have been released. We are no longer staring at the shadows. He was so close to seeing his creator, the first mover, the cause of all life and existence, Because the Lord is indeed not far from each of us. And every shadow of truth points to the light just outside the cave. And that is the Lord and creator and master of everything. So today's text follows Paul's ministry from Thessalonica and Berea and into the next town known as Athens. In Thessalonica and Berea, the Jews were challenged by the authority of God's word being Truth. Some of them saw what God's word said about this Messiah who would be a suffering servant, and they believed. Um, But it was a great challenge of persecution as well. Paul fled. Timothy and Silas stayed. So now Paul is down the coast a little further in Macedonia, in Athens, a huge city, and he's alone. Timothy and Silas aren't there yet. And he takes a different approach with these philosophers Um, than he did back in Thessalonica and Berea. This time he appeals to their own worldview and their desire to worship something outside of themselves. He appeals to the world, to nature, to mankind as a proof of an intelligent and divine designer. 
He doesn't rely on scripture as much as he did last time when he's evangelizing these lofty Greek Athenians. So kids, if y'all want to learn a really cool new word, the word is of the day, the teleological argument. The teleological argument. The word teleo, it's a good word. Have you guys tried it yet? Teleological? Pretty good, pretty good. Teleo is a Greek word for goal, end, purpose, the aim, um, and the argument is to explain what the purpose of everything is. Uh, The teleological argument is an explanation for why we exist based on the simple shadows in the world around us that point to the master of it all. So what is the answer? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There are four points to kind of guide our time through this text this morning, and we will not finish them. I am very prepared to finish this next week. But here's where we're headed. The first point in, has to do with the purpose itself, which is simply to glorify God alone, to worship Him. God alone deserves all the glory. He is exclusively worshipped, no one else. And the next three characteristics are pieces of who God is that influence how we worship Him. We worship Him as Creator, we worship Him as Savior, we worship Him as Judge. We worship Him as Creator, worship Him as Savior, we worship Him as Judge. So, first of all, glory to God alone. Paul moved on to Athens, and again, he was on his own this time. And he was determined, where we left off, to wait for Paul and Silas. He had called for them, they were going to come, you know, but waiting has never really been Paul's strong suit, right? So he gets in Athens, and he sees everything that's going on. Maybe he didn't want to stir the pot too much. But he could not help himself. For the short time he was there, his spirit was provoked within him, verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him. The word provoked means to be aroused with anger, indignation, or irritation. The second part of that word in the Greek is oxus, which means a sharp edge. It was like his soul was cut with a razor blade. Something had pierced him, and it inspired in him a spark of pain, bitterness, and holy anger. The only other place this word is used in the Bible, ironically, is 1 Corinthians 13, which is a passage on love. And Paul wrote that passage, and he said, love is not irritable. Same word. Love is not provoked. So I think what that means here is he did not love what he was seeing. He was not in love in this moment. What did he see? He saw a city full of idols. Athens was this Roman-inspired metropolis full of artistic renderings of Greek gods influenced in all of their magnificent architectural temples and buildings. Athens was not an anti-religious city. It was a very religious place. Religion saturated almost everything you saw. The locals saw beauty and were pointed to all kinds of false gods and gave false promises and ultimately false hopes. They saw splendor and glory, but Paul saw the idolatry of mere gold and silver and stone. This was the most blatant and inundated form of idolatry that he had ever laid eyes on, and he was cut to the core. So sorry, Timothy and Silas, I tried to wait, but I can't. 
Something's about to happen. He's about to explode. So I ask us this morning, does the blatant pride of idolatry ever cut us to the core? I'm not talking about starting peaceful protests or making angry Facebook posts ranting about how bad the world is. I'm talking about seeing a glimpse of the sinfulness of sin and being filled with a holy jealousy for the glory of God. People are throwing their glory at worthless idols instead of the one true God, and that glory is wasted. So, beloved, this is something that even Jesus modeled for us. All four Gospels record a few events which Jesus was cut to the core like Paul was here. One of those times was when his own disciples were rebuking little children whose parents had brought them to come and see Jesus. And they were shooing them away. And Jesus, full of indignation, says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. They were seeking the kingdom of God. And his own disciples were keeping them from it. They were keeping the children from doing the thing that they were created to do, to worship God and God alone. And when we see others wasting their glory on worthless idols in an extravagant way, we should be impassioned, reverent, and have a holy concern for the glory of God. Again, God does not allow us to well up with this feeling so we can rant and rave and start fights and be ridiculous. He does this so we might have a zeal for evangelism. Because what happens next? Does Paul start a fight? Paul immediately, next verse, began to reason with the Jews, devout persons, anyone in the marketplace who would listen to him. He begins to share the truth. Every day, whoever showed up, that was his audience. Athens was full of philosophers like Plato and Socrates. This is where they came from. Some of them called him a babbler with his reasoning. Some of them called him a preacher of foreign divinities. All he was preaching was Jesus and the resurrection, that he alone deserves the glory, but they were not convinced. A couple things about idolatry first. Idolatry is anything that we worship aside from God. Idolatry is anything that we worship aside from God. Idolatry can be man-made images crafted to look like animals or creatures, as we've read about in Romans 1. Or it could be Instagram, Twitter, and every other thing that comes up on your cell phone. It could be a person, spouse, or loved one. It may be a job or a pursuit, a hobby, a goal of yours that you have. The thing which you think about 24-7, that which controls you, moves you, excites you, captivates you, that is what you worship. That is your God. You may be thinking of something in your life right now as I share those words. And perhaps that's the Lord's kindness to you to reveal something that you have made an idol in your life. Perhaps the Lord will give you grace and you will repent today and stop giving his glory away to worthless things. One clue that you've fallen headfirst into idolatry is when God's truth begins to sound like babble. They said, what does this babbler have to say? It must be a preacher of foreign divinities. And babble just means noise or some kind of nonsense. Foreign divinities means foolishness or something strange at least. 1 John 3 says that we will know that we are of the truth. We can reassure our hearts before God if we hear his word 
we believe in. He says in 1 John 3, this is his commandment, that we believe the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Does believing in the name of Jesus Christ and loving one another sound strange to you? Does that sound like Babel? Or does that sound like truth? If it sounds like Babel, you may be captivated by an idol. Or worse, you may not have the Spirit in you at all. You were made to worship the one and true living God and not worthless things. I invite you this morning to search your heart for idolatry, to repent of it, and give it to God alone. The world may think this is foolish, but I assure you, worshiping the creation rather than the creator is a far greater folly than faithfulness to King Jesus. We were created to glorify the King of Kings, not stuff. The rest of this text shows us why God is worthy of our worship, starting with the fact that he alone made everything. He is creator, and we worship him as creator. Verses 19 through 25. He was called a babbler, but evidently gained just enough interest to be brought before the Oropagus. It says that they took him and brought him there, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, what is the Oropagus that they took him to? Um, this is kind of like a Greek version of the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was a council of people also affiliated with a specific landmark uh, who exercised jurisdiction in matters of religion and morality in Athens. It's likely that they would have met on the actual landmark known as the Oropagus, which is named after the Greek god of war, Ares, and I think I have a picture of it. I sure do on the next slide. So imagine all these folks meeting up on top of this big rock and giving these orations with this huge mountain in the background, the blue skies, and all the beauty that surrounds. They, if they did meet there, you can just see the beauty of Paul's argument even more clearly, right? As he stands before all of this creation on top of this huge rock. They invited him, and they said they invited him because they loved to spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Solomon told us long ago in the book of Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. The argument they are going to hear is not a new one. It may be new to them, but it is old as creation. Here is this truth, verse 22. Standing in the midst of the Oropagus, Paul said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, this might sound a little bit backhanded to some of us. We don't like the word religion or religious in our culture, right? But I, think, I don't think he was being sarcastic or cynical. I think he was saying, I, I, I can tell you guys really want to worship. You guys have some order and some purpose, and you, you, you see beauty and spirituality and ethics and all of this. It's everywhere. It's unavoidable. But Paul says, I happened upon an inscription on an altar that said, to the unknown God. 
Wow. To the unknown God. Most of their gods had some Greek representation of nature or human emotion or a man, but this one was simply unknown. They wanted to worship him, and they couldn't even give him a name. They couldn't tell him what he was God of. He was simply an unknown God. The only name they could give him was Agnosto Theo, the unknowable God. (coughs) Plato was literally walking around these parts of Athens 300 years before this took place. Isn't that crazy? He may have stood on this very hill and gave an oration about the unknowability of God. To be so close and to want to know the meaning of life and where you came from, why you exist, have it on the tip of your tongue, but to be terribly lost. This is religious agnosticism, and it is perhaps the saddest state of any human soul. That is the person who says, I don't know if God exists, I don't know if we can believe or or know for sure that there's any God at all. Yet they also say things like, I do believe in moral absolutes. I believe in right and wrong. I believe in justice, love, order. And I do believe something's going to happen when we die. There's some kind of afterlife. This religiosity of it'll all work out in the end may be commendable in the sense of searching for truth and order, but it is still lostness. Religious activity will never save a single soul. Their only hope and our only hope is that we truly know God who we were made to love and find life in and know his name and know him as Lord. This is what James writes uh, will birth a religion that is true and undefiled. So here it is. Here is the unknown God, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So let's just do a quick sermon series over the next eight months on this verse. Because the theology wrapped up in here is just, I can't even, I can't even handle it. You know, and I've, y'all, I'm tired this morning, and my throat hurts, and I, (laughs) Just see the glory of God. See the glory of God here. He is glorious. This was masterfully done on top of a giant rock in Athens. And God uses Paul to reveal his glory. The heavens proclaiming his handiwork. The skies above pouring out speech day after day and night after night revealing knowledge that there is only one true maker and one true God who rules over all. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He spoke, and all life came into existence. That means if cause and effect is real, if every effect, everything as we know it, had to have some initial movement, some initial cause to that thing coming to be, there had to be a beginning. Which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? There was a first mover, a first cause that set all of this into motion, and he has a name. He is the Lord. He is not unknown. He is the sun bursting in with light from the outside of the cave. He needs nothing. There is no cause that made him to be in effect. He is the first and the only and the last. 
He is the burning bush that does not consume the branches. He is self-sustaining. He is autonomous. He continues to manage and oversee and sustain all of his creation flawlessly by the power of his word. He is the one true God. He gives life and breath and everything to all mankind. Everything that exists, every atom of oxygen and hydrogen and carbon that circulates in our atmosphere, every force of gravity that allows the earth to spin on its axis and keep us on the earth at just the right rate, 24-7, and all that contributes to life as we know it comes from the hand of a masterful God and King. Paul preached this same truth in Lystra when the locals began worshiping him. He said, don't worship me and Barnabas. Worship the living God, the one who made heaven and earth. God owns everything and God sustains everything. He is the living God. You may not have known him, but he's the one that gave rain and life on the earth. Every time you ever had food and gladness of heart, this was a gift from your maker and your creator. He owns everything and sustains even you. And here's the real kicker in all of this amazing truth that he's unpacking. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. In all of Athens, there was some kind of religion based on a give and take. I give this God glory, he gives me some kind of blessing. I give this idol, this thing, my attention, and it gives me something in return. And if there were Jews there, which there very well may have been, this was also upsetting for them because Paul had based his entire ministry before Christ on the ability to serve God with his human hands. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, keeping the law blamelessly. And here is Paul, a radically converted Pharisee, saying God is not served by human hands. There's nothing you can do to make God need you. And still so much of evangelical worship today is based on human service rather than a compelling zeal and reverence for the glory of the God of hosts. Now, we serve the Lord, right? Amen? We serve the Lord. Paul says multiple times in his next writings, right? He talks of himself. I'm a servant of Christ, a bondservant, a slave of Christ. This is my calling. This is why I exist. We serve the Lord. We serve each other. We serve the church. Paul says here that human hands don't serve God. So which is it? Do we serve God or not serve God? We do serve the Lord with gladness, but our service to God is not the basis of our relationship with him, nor is it the basis of his self-revelation to us. Here's what I mean by that. If every believer on earth suddenly stopped serving God this very moment, God would be just fine. Let me say it again. If every pastor and missionary and seminary professor in the world renounced their faith and completely stopped believing in this God as Lord, he would still be in the heavens laughing while the nations spin in derision. Our hands don't affect him, nor are they the basis of our relationship with him. He does not need our service. He does not need our hands. Our relationship with God has to be based on something else. So why has God shown up? 
Why has he revealed the light from the back of the cave? Why has he shown us his glory? What's the purpose? What are we to do with this? The Lord says, I am glorious and I intend to serve you by giving you a taste for my own glory. We don't serve him. He has revealed himself in order to serve us. God did not show up because he wanted to recruit a few more soldiers for his army. God did not show up because he was lonely. God did not come with sign-up sheets for all kinds of jobs and tasks and spiritual duties to be performed. He does not need us. He came to serve us. John Piper says that the gospel is not a help-wanted sign. The gospel is a help-available sign. In God's infinite wisdom and power and sovereignty, the Creator lowered Himself into the trenches of His own creation. He became a man, and Jesus' express reason for doing this is not to be served, but to serve, to give His life as a ransom for many, to wash feet and save sinners. Jesus came not to condemn and recruit, but to serve. Which is why we worship him as creator and maker and Lord of hosts. We also worship him as savior. Because we didn't see him and then decide, great, now I can save myself by my hand's work. We saw him and said, praise be to God that he has served us and provided a perfect savior. He is savior. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind. Every nation has come from who? Who's the one man? Just in case you're wondering, right? Paul believed in a real Adam, historical, one man, first creation, first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And from them, the entire human race as we know it came to be, every nation, the Tower of Babel and sin and fallenness and dispersion throughout the entire earth. God has done this all. He worked it to be. He dispersed everybody. And he has determined allotted periods and boundaries for the dwelling place of each man in every generation forever. That's huge. Again, I, <laughs> I'm starting to wake up a little bit. Thank the Lord. But this is We're going to come back more next week, right? But this means at least three things. It means that you're not here by accident or by coincidence in North Carolina, in Rutherford County, where you were born, who you came from, your parents, your job, anything about your life is coincidental. Not a chance, right? That's the first thing it means. Second thing it means is that God knows exactly where you are all the time. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Nothing in your life is absent from the Lord's mind at any time. The third thing this means is that God has infinitely wise purposes and plans for where each of us are during determined periods of time forever until the end of the world. Infinitely wise. Like we can't even manage our own households. He oversees every single detail of life. If you don't think God is glorious yet, it gets better. Watch this. Why 
are you in North Carolina? Why were you born to your parents? Why did you go to that school? Why did you have those friends? Why did you meet that spouse? Why did you take up fly fishing? Why did you go to jail for a year? Why did you get sick last week? Why did you change careers? Why did you show up to church today? There are a billion infinitely wise reasons and purposes and answers for all of these questions, and I don't know them. But I know at least one of those reasons. God has determined allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling places that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him. That's at least one reason for everything in your life. To seek and find the Savior. To see the light in the back of the cave. To feel our way in the darkness toward our Maker and our Creator. Know who we are and why we exist in light of Him. The only valid seeker-sensitive movement is the one that God has employed since the beginning of humanity. And that's the one that he ordains in which he oversees the heart and soul of every man groping their way towards him. He puts people in places where they can see a glimpse of his beauty and be saved from their sins. Paul knows that that was a massive statement that he just made on top of the Oropagus. You got anything to back that up, Paul? What's your proof text? Paul doesn't go to the Old Testament, does he? He doesn't appeal to one of the prophets. He goes to their own culture and their own worldview to prove that God has put them where they are and given them this timeless truth within their own hearts to find and seek a Savior. And he quotes two well-known authors of the day. The first one, In Him We Live and Have Our Being, was a hymn to Zeus written by Epimenides, or whatever his name is, Epimenides, something like that. The second, For We Are Indeed His Offspring, comes from a poem written by some guy named Aratus. These were songs sung by pagans. He probably heard them singing them or talking about them while he was there that week. And he said, y'all are almost there. You, you, you already realize that you belong to something and there's something outside of yourself that you need to find. So here is the theme of your religion. Let me help you find the truth. You've been feeling and groping and searching in the dark, and you've only come up with images made of gold and silver or stone from your own imagination. That's the best you could do. You tried. I get it. You can't find the Savior with your own works or your own imagination. They did the best they could. Yet the true and living God, he says, is actually not far from each one of us. We are indeed God's offspring, born of the offspring of Adam from the first man. And though we've sinned and we've become depraved in heart, God has not completely abandoned his offspring. He is near to each of us. Have any of y'all cut grass yet this year? A few of you. Eric told me he's already been done, doing it <clears throat> lots. I just did for the first time yesterday. And while cutting around our old well, water pump, I ran over something that snapped. There were some old wires laying next to the well, and I assumed that they were dead since they were laying on the surface of the ground in broad daylight. Josiah Seeley actually pointed them out to me 
last uh, fall, I guess. And I said, eh, probably nothing. <clears throat> and uh, they were not nothing. I shredded them, and I went back inside, all proud and boastful for cutting the grass for the first time this year, only to find out that our water wasn't working. I had cut the power to our water pump. <clears throat> this was quickly turning into a crisis with a 22-month-old and a 37-weeks pregnant wife. And I was sitting outside in the grass with Isla, staring up at the pine trees, bristling in the wind, and the clear blue skies above. The sun shining down with this precious girl about to fall asleep in my arms, looking up at me. And I'm wondering, what am I going to do? In that moment, <clears throat> Stephen Matheny pulled in the driveway. We were able to patch those wires in about 30 minutes, and our water was working. The situation felt impossible, but help was actually not far at all. God is the sovereign king, master, ruler, lord, omnipresent, everywhere, all the time, all wise, unchanging, and yet he's not far from any of us at any time. And once we discover this, that the one true God knows us and is not far from us, Paul says next, you are commanded to repent. God has given you a Savior. Repent and believe in him because he is near. He is not far from you. The one true God will save you. All people everywhere hear the word of the Lord. You must repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's Lord, he's king, he's needing nothing. And yet he came to earth to bear the penalty for our sins on a cross, dying the death that we deserve, drinking the full cup of God's wrath down to the dregs and then rose from the dead to intercede for sinners. You cannot say that you didn't know. You cannot claim ignorance. He is not far from you. And if you believe on him as Lord, you will be saved from your sin. And to be saved from your sins is to find the answer that all your religiosity has been searching for, all that you've been groping for and searching for in the darkness is to be born again and to have your life's meaning find fulfillment and purpose in the person and the work, the Son of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He will make your heart alive and exchange your heart of stone for a heart of flesh, and you can be alive in him forevermore. He is here right now. He is not far from anyone in this room. Where you are, he knows. Where you will be, he knows. Where you have come from, he knows. And he invites you where you are, hearing the truth that there is a creator and there is a Lord and that there is a Savior. To turn from your idolatry and worship him alone. If you're here today and you're not a believer. You're unsure of your salvation. You just don't know. 
call out to Christ. He's not far, and he will save you. This is your only hope. And church, this is also our only hope. The hope of the dying pagan is the hope of every believer on the planet. To know that Christ is not far from us at all. We'll see next week that he's going to judge the world in righteousness. Joy to the world, right? And he will give assurance of salvation. He will give a resurrection to us that is like his own. This is the final nearness of Jesus that we're waiting for. To see him face to face and be made like him, we are bound for the promised land. But there's hope for today too. I'm not doing that third point. <laughs> Don't get scared. There's hope for today too. Because even though we can't see him face to face now, there is not an hour that he is not near us. The King of kings and Lord of lords is always near you. Just let that sink in this week. And when you need help, ask him for help. Because he's not far. He's not there watching you with a hidden camera trying to catch you doing something bad like a security guard. His nearness is service. Why has he revealed himself to us? Not so that we could serve him. He doesn't need our hands. Why has he revealed himself to us? Serve us. Why is he near to you now? Serve you. He's Lord and master and servant of you. I, I can't grasp it. So look at the tops of the pine trees as they bristle in the wind. Preach the teleological argument to yourself. The God who created the world and everything that is in it and made all nations from one man and gives life and sustenance to all things is near you. Won't you take him at his word? Won't you rest on his promises? Won't you sing of his glory? Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your own revelation that shows us a Savior who is indeed beautiful. Help us to sing of his glory more, to not give his glory away to idols, to find our meaning in him and give all that we have, not in some basis of relationship with you, but because serving you has become the ultimate joy of our lives and seeing you a servant to us as sinners. Our minds can't fathom it. It's a wisdom too great. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of your beauty. Thank you for being near. I pray that all of us would feel your nearness and experience it daily. <coughs> and anybody here today that does not know you as Lord, they would see the command to repent and believe now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. 
I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.